The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And we're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight. I hope that's okay with you. We're going to look at a lot of scripture. The title of my sermon is The Way of Power. How many of you, by a show of hands, could use a power upgrade tonight? Oh, I hope you're all of your hands should be up. There's nothing better than getting that new phone, that new technology, that new gadget. It's like a power upgrade. And God, I believe, wants to give each of us a power upgrade this evening. And we're going to talk about that. Um, roughly 2.4 billion people around the planet identify today as Christians. That's cool. That's a cool statistic. That's roughly 30% of the Earth's population. But what does that really mean? What does that term Christian encompass? Well, it comes from a Greek word that actually means little Christ. The first place where the name Christian shows up in the Bible is in Acts chapter 11. And it was a name that was given to the earliest followers of Jesus. It wasn't originally intended as a compliment. Actually, it was originally branded on them as an insult. In the city of Antioch, Acts chapter 11 tells us that there were all these Jesus followers running around and they were talking like Jesus, and they were giving like Jesus, and they were kind like Jesus, and they were performing miracles like Jesus. And so those who were in Antioch said, you know what? These, these followers of Jesus, they're like a bunch of little Christs running around. And so they called them Christians, which means little Christ. They meant it in a derogatory way, but the, the name stuck because the Christians wore it as a badge of honor. So that's where the name Christian comes from. But did you know that the early church never actually identified themselves as Christians? As a matter of fact, the word Christian, it only shows up in the New Testament on three different occasions. So if the earliest followers of Jesus didn't identify as Christians, then what did they call themselves primarily? Well, if the word Christian shows up three times, by way of contrast, the word saint shows up some 67 times. Now, I wonder, have you ever thought of yourself in that way? Saint so-and-so, Saint Christy over here, Saint Drew, Saint Daniel. Maybe you should ask your, your spouse or your kids to car start calling you Saint Mom or Saint Dad, because according to the Bible, that's exactly what you are. You say, I'm no saint. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, then you are a saint according to God's estimation of things. So they referred to themselves as saints. Now, the other name by which they identified was as followers of the way. And this shows up in a number of places throughout the New Testament. The, the first time we read about this is in Acts chapter 9, where a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who would later become known as Paul the Apostle, he had obtained letters from the leaders in Jerusalem, giving him authority to go and seek out and find any who were of the way in order that he might arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem to face charges. The name The Way, it, it came from what Jesus said about himself. What did Jesus say there in John 14? He said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So unlike other religious leaders, Jesus didn't say, I know the way, or I'm a way, I'm one of many ways, or I'll point you on the right way. Jesus said emphatically, I am the way. And thus we see that to follow Jesus is to adopt his way of doing life. We need to understand this as we think through this concept. We're we're calling this series The Way of Jesus. And we need to understand that at its core, this is what it means to be a Christian. Christianity isn't primarily about adhering to a list of rules or believing a set of truths. Those things are all good and fine. But at the end of the day, being a Christian is about walking the way of Jesus and adopting his way for yourself. So that's what we're talking about in this series. In the first week, Sean talked about the way of Jesus' approach, his his vision statement for his life. And then last week, Pastor Danny looked at Jesus' prayer life, the way of prayer and adopting Jesus' way of walking through life in prayer as a model for the way that we ought to do life. Today, we're going to wrap things up by considering Jesus' power source that he relied on to live his life. So there was a way that Jesus lived that involved power, and I want to talk to you about that. If you think about it, anything that performs a function in your life, it relies on some source of power, right? Now, that power may come from a battery. It may come from electricity, or that thing may be powered by gasoline. But if it performs a function, then it has a power source. And that goes for everything in your life that performs a function, including you. Now, your power source is, of all things, food. Think about it. As you're sitting there right now, your body is busy at work, and your stomach is using acids to break down the carbohydrates and the proteins that you ate at lunch, and it's turning those things into glucose and and other things that your body then converts into energy so that you can go about your day and perform various activities with your body. So we rely on a power source. Now, what happens when something gets disconnected from its power source? Well, it immediately ceases to work or work as well, right? Unplug a lamp from the wall and good luck turning that thing on. In the same way, if you stop eating today, tomorrow you're going to feel weak. Just as another example of this, I remember this one time I was uh, driving my car and uh, for whatever reason, as I was driving, I, I started to hit the accelerator, but the power in my car was gone. Now, it wasn't completely dead, But I couldn't go faster than about 10 to 15 miles an hour. My first thought was, oh, I'm probably out of gas. So I looked down at my gas gauge, and sure enough, the tank was still half full. So I started thinking through, what else could it be? I checked the oil pressure and the other gauges on the dashboard, and they all read fine. The the battery was fine. And I limped along and made my way to work that day. And I'm not really a car guy, but I'm also really cheap, and I didn't want to have to pay to have my co-car towed to, to the, the mechanic, and so I decided to, to pop the hood and, and have a look for myself, and, and this is an important skill set as a man. You've, you've got to be able to, to pop the hood and know how to stand there and just stare at a car engine, you know, because you've got to look the part. I think, this is true, I think my wife even walked by at a certain point. She said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm working on the car. It's obvious. 
She knows I'm not a car guy. I think I even tried to like make up a few words to, to kind of pull the wool over her eyes and, and kind of trick her. I was like, I, I'm just checking, you know, the blinker fluid and the flux capacitor and the transvan girder belt and, and these kinds of things. And she looked at me suspiciously and walked on and said, mm-hmm. And, and I'm fiddling with a few wires. Like I said, I don't really know a lot about cars. And I was just about ready to give up and call the tow truck company. And I happened to look down one more time. And I noticed this one wire that it just looked like it should have been connected to this part in the engine. And I thought, what the heck? I'll give it a try. And so I grabbed that wire. And I reconnected it to where I thought it should go in the engine. And I went back. And I fired the car back up. And the thing roared to life, and I had fixed the car, and I walked around the rest of the day bragging to my wife about what an amazing mechanic I am and how blessed she is to have someone who's so handy as a husband, right? Now, here's the thing about that story. It left a lasting impression on me about the difference that one little connection can make. I think you can see where I'm going with this story. You, you know as well as I do that it's not just cars that get disconnected. I wonder if I'm talking to anyone here tonight who finds themselves in a season of life where they feel powerless, gutless. If not today, I'm sure you've been there before. You're still perhaps going through the motions, but the power is gone. On the inside, you just feel numb. You're still running, but just barely. You're barely holding on. You feel weak, defeated, beaten down. You go to bed tired, and you wake up tired the next morning. You're ready to give up. And then church doesn't even seem to be helping. You go to church, and you hear the preacher talk about this abundant, victorious life that Jesus promises to his followers, but that hasn't been your experience. And so it seems like it's out of reach. Instead of flourishing, you're floundering. Instead of thriving, you're barely surviving. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk to anyone to whom that may apply. And if it's not you right now, it may be you in the future. And to be sure, you know someone to whom this does apply. And so I want to talk specifically to that issue. And I want to talk about one little connection that can make all the difference in your life. And so to do that, we need to talk about Jesus, right? Because by any measure of the word, Jesus lived a powerful life. He moved in power. His ministry was powerful. His preaching was powerful. The miracles he performed were powerful. His authority over the unclean spirits was powerful. No one would dispute that. Come to think of it, even Jesus' enemies didn't try to deny the fact that he moved in power. They couldn't deny his miracles. And so they had to come up with some other reason or excuse for why he was able to to live such a powerful life, because they couldn't deny it. So here's the question. Where did all of that power come from? What was Jesus' power source? Now, if I were to climb into your heads, and I was sitting where you were sitting, my, immediately, my immediate response and gut reaction would be, well, his power came from the fact that he's God. <laughs> Hello? Think about it. And that's true, 100%. As the Nicene Creed states, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Light of light, very God of very God. That's Jesus. Light of light, very God 
a very God. Make no mistake about it. And yet, when we come to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, we read something really interesting. He says there in Philippians chapter 2, which, by the way, just so happened to be in my devotional reading this morning. He said that we as Christians should adopt the same mindset as Jesus, who, listen to this, this is Philippians 2, 6, and 7, who being in the very nature God, in very nature God, and did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, that's an interesting verse that has caused no bit of de- small debate among theologians as to what it's exactly getting at. In particular, that phrase where it says, he made himself nothing. In the Greek, it's this phrase, kenosis. It can also be translated that he emptied himself. So what exactly did Jesus empty himself of when he came to this earth? Well, for starters, we can plainly say that Jesus didn't empty himself of divinity. (laughs) Not for a moment. He never stopped being God. Rather, what he did is he added humanity to his nature so that while he was on earth, he was simultaneously 100% God and 100% man. Now, some of you are thinking, I'm not a genius, but I can do a little bit of math. And I know that 100% plus 100% equals 200%. How is it even possible that he could be both fully God and fully man? And the answer is, I don't know. He's God. And that's the answer, right? And so he is the word made flesh. He is God in skin and bones. But the point is, when Jesus walked on this earth, Paul wants us to know that he did so. He lived life as a man. So he didn't hover two feet off the ground. He didn't glow in the dark or anything like that. He lived as a man. And as such, he accepted all of the limitations of a man. And so what that means is he was tempted just like us. If you cut him, he bled. He got lonely just like us. He got tired just like us. And I think that's important for us to understand as we talk about where Jesus' power source came from. Because what it means is we can't write off his life as this one-off kind of thing. Because when Jesus lived on this earth, he walked as a man just like you and I. So again, I ask the question, where did Jesus' power come from? Now I've got you thinking. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 is in your notes, and it provides us with the answer. Here's what it says. It says this, God, listen, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Let me say that again. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Don't miss the connection. Those two things aren't unrelated. They're interdependent. Luke wants us to know that the power that Jesus walked in on this earth came as a direct result of his connection to and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. To put it in other words, the Holy Spirit was Jesus' power source. Now, this connection 
to the, the Holy Spirit and this correlation between Jesus' power that he walked in and the spirit that he relied on is something that we can trace throughout the life of Jesus. And I'd like to spend a couple of minutes doing just that very thing with you. So look with me at Luke chapter 1. And we're going to start in the beginning. When Mary received the news from the angel Gabriel that she was about to conceive in her womb and become mother to God in human flesh, she questioned him and said, how can this be, seeing as how I've never been intimate with a man before? And and here's what the angel told her in response. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Then the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Notice again the connection there between the Holy Spirit and power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He wants her to know that this baby that was about to be born to her, it was not going to be any normal baby. He wasn't going to be conceived in the normal way, nor was he going to walk in a normal amount of power. He was going to be the son of the living God. So this is Jesus' origin. He is conceived by the Spirit. He begins his life in the Spirit. Now, fast forward 30 years, and you arrive at the next really significant event in Jesus' life. We find it in Luke chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there with me in your Bible. And this is Jesus just prior to launching his public ministry. And so he's embarking on a new season of life. He spends about the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity, working as a craftsman in his father's shop. But then the time comes for him to set out and fulfill the mission and the purpose for which he was born. And so before he does that, he goes to John the baptizer and says, I want to be baptized by you. At first, John resists and says, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, it needs to be so for now to fulfill all things. And so he persists, and John relents. And it says there in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you're my son and whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. So this is a major milestone, a turning point in many ways in Jesus' life and ministry. Three of the four gospels mention it, and it's significant because this is for all practical intents and purposes, Jesus' ordination ceremony. And so who do we find there in attendance? The Father and the Spirit. The father says in that moment, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. By the way, take note of the the timing of that statement. How many miracles had Jesus performed at that moment, at that point? Zero. How many messages had he preached? None. And yet the father says, before he had done anything, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. And I just want to Share that to make this point. As the Father looks at you, it's not the things that you do that make him proud of you. It is simply by virtue of the fact that you are his child, his son, or his daughter that makes him say, you're my son, you're my daughter, and you please me. You know as well as I do that if you have kids, they don't have to do anything to earn your love. They have it by virtue of the fact that they're yours. So the Father says that. But the other thing that happens 
The Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. Now, Jesus, he was already conceived by the Spirit, full of the Spirit. And yet, as he's preparing to launch a public ministry, the Spirit then lands upon him in physical manifestation in the form of a dove. And and that is significant because it empowers him for a life of ministry and service. Now, from this point forward, Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit really takes off and takes center stage in the Gospel of Luke. Look at Luke chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now Jesus having been conceived of the Spirit, baptized in the anointing of the Spirit, is full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. And you can imagine that the devil is pulling out all of the stops. He's using all of his best tricks on Jesus, trying to get him to sin. But as Jesus walks in reliance upon the Spirit and under the anointing and power of the Spirit, he overcomes all temptation and defeats the devil. And then verse 14, this is so significant. Jesus returns triumphantly to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. I love this. Once again, we see the correlation between the anointing, the empowering of the Spirit, and the power that Jesus lived. And don't miss this connection either. Jesus walked in purity, and because of that, there was a power that flowed through him. The result of his purity was more power. He said no to temptation. He said no to the devil. And his fame spread, and his power was more evident than ever. Do you want to live a powerful life? Somebody say yes. Yes. Do you want to live a powerful life? Somebody say yes. Amen. Then live a pure life like Jesus did. Walk in the spirit. Say no to temptation. And the result will be more power. Jesus returns to Galilee. This is the place of his birth, rather his hometown. And now he, in verse 16, goes back to Nazareth, which is where he was born. This is where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And then notice these four words, as was his custom. What did Jesus do when he got to Nazareth? Well, it was the Sabbath, so he did what he always did. He went to synagogue. This tells us, as we're considering the way of Jesus, how did Jesus do life? He made church a priority. It wasn't a sometimes kind of thing. It wasn't a if it's convenient kind of thing. Jesus was in synagogue, and it was his custom. And I know it's hard, and there are many different ways of being in church. And there's some of us who long to gather in a physical way right now, but we can't because of physical limitations and and risk factors and things like that. But I'm just trying to drive home this point that there is a great need to make the word and the teaching of the word of God a priority in your life, to be part of the ecclesia, the church. Jesus, it was part of his rhythm in life. Now, there are some who would say, church doesn't matter, or it's not important. The beach is my church, they say, or the mountains are my church. But here we see very clearly that if we're to follow Jesus' way of life, then we need to make 
church or synagogue a priority. So that's where he goes. And you can imagine, as his fame has now spread abroad, that everybody would have packed out that local synagogue on this particular day. I mean, Jesus, he's like the local boy who had done good and made it big out there in the big wide world. And so looking on that day as Jesus has been invited as a guest preacher to read through the scriptures, everybody would have been there, his teachers from when he was younger, his coaches, his peers, his friends, his family, curious onlookers, they all would have been there. And it says this, that he was teaching in their synagogues, or rather, and he stood up to read. So he, he goes to the local synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. So this is how church did, was done back then. The teacher would stand up with everyone else. The word of God would be read to give God honor and his word honor. And then the teacher would sit down, and he would teach, and all the people would stand. Now, we've kind of got that reversed here, but I wouldn't mind having a seat up here. Seems like it would be pretty nice. But anyways, that was the custom. He sat down after standing, and the scroll, verse 17, of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, notice what he does. He found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because why? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then, verse 20, this is so cool. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. What's he going to say? And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he dropped the mic. And he went, no, this is a drop the mic moment. Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah. He unfolds it. They had scrolls of the whole thing. And he unrolls it to, to Isaiah 61. And he reads this powerful prophetic passage about how the spirit of the Lord would anoint the Mashiach. That's what Mashiach means, Messiah, the anointed one, to preach the gospel, to give sight to the blind, to free the captives. And in this moment, in this small, obscure village in a hamlet of the Roman Empire with just a couple of dozen people looking on Jesus reads that prophetic passage about the Messiah. And he says, guess what, folks? The day that Isaiah was foretelling of is this day. And I'm that guy. I'm anointed by the Spirit to preach the gospel, to give sight to the blind, to give freedom to those who have been held in bondage and those who are in prison to set them free. And everybody's just eyes are as big as saucers. But anybody can say that, right? And so Jesus didn't just say it. He backed up his words with deeds. And we don't have time to get into it this evening. But if we could, we would read through the rest of Luke 4. And what we would find is Jesus preaching powerfully. We would find him healing sicknesses and diseases. We would find him casting out devils and impure spirits. And he was backing up the message that he had preached in that synagogue. And the point I'm trying to get us to see is that he did all of that as a spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-empowered man of God. 
In fact, everything Jesus did, he did in the power of the Spirit. He healed through the Spirit. He prayed in the Spirit. He preached under the anointing of the Spirit. He cast out demons in the Spirit. Everything he did, he did as a Spirit-filled believer. Yeah? You say, OK. That's great. Jesus did life in the power of the Spirit. So what? What's the point? And here's the whole point. Here's the point. If Jesus was God, and he relied upon the Holy Spirit to empower him for ministry and service, then who do we think we are that we can get by without him? You see, by walking in the Spirit, Jesus was modeling for us the way that he wants us to do life. He was showing us, by, by his example, the way that we're supposed to live the Christian life. To put it another way, Jesus was showing us the power source for Christian living. And so many Christians miss this. They may give the Holy Spirit lip service, but when it really comes down to it, are you at this very moment relying on the Holy Spirit to empower you to defeat the enemy, to walk in victory, to live your daily life? You see, I don't know if we are. And perhaps that's why so many of us live weak, insipid, powerless, defeated lives. We're living disconnected from the Spirit. We're trying to do it on our own. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of us are well-meaning, well-intentioned. And we're trying in the best of our capacity and to the best of our ability to, to be like Jesus, to be loving like Jesus, to be kind like Jesus, to be gentle like Jesus, to be compassionate like Jesus, to be gracious like Jesus. But we're doing it in our own strength. And that's why it's not working. You see, I want to I say something. And this might be the most important thing I say. The truth is. Wanting to be like Jesus isn't enough to actually live the life that Jesus wants us to live. It's not enough in our own strength. It's a bit like this. When I was a kid, I had a lot of heroes. But one of my heroes was Michael Jordan. Ugh. He was a larger-than-life figure growing up in the 80s and 90s when Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls were just untouchable. How many of you, by the way, watched that, um, that, that show that recently came out about Michael Jordan? Um, what was it called? Last Dance. The Last Dance. Did you guys watch The Last Dance? <laughs> Not a Last Dance kind of church. OK. <laughs> anyway, so let me start at the beginning. There was this guy named Michael Jordan. <laughs> And he defined greatness on the basketball court. I, I loved Michael Jordan. And anyways, at the height of his stardom, there was this commercial about Michael Jordan. Some of you, like me, that were 80s kids are going to remember this. And, and there was this montage of Michael Jordan just defying gravity and just breaking ankles on the basketball court and just tongue wagging, dunking basketballs. And, and it's just like, wow, this is the greatest guy ever. And, and there was this song in the background that went like this, sometimes I dream. He is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. And then he went on and on like Mike. If I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. And then, and then at the end, there was this, this voiceover that came on that said, be like Mike. Drink Gatorade. <laughs> and there he is, drinking Gatorade. Don't you know 
that in that moment, as an impressionable young man, I went and told my mom, Mom, we need Gatorade. And I spent a whole summer drinking Gatorade by the gallon. And I went out and I bought black trunks just like he wore. And I bought a red tank top because that's what he wore being a Chicago Bull. And I studied film of him. And I watched his games. And I tried to even stick out my tongue when I shot the basketball because that's what he did, thinking, if I imitate Mike, I can be like Mike. But there is not enough Gatorade in this universe to make me play basketball like Michael Jordan. And sometimes I can't help but wonder if that's not unlike the way many of us approach Christianity. We think that being a Christian means trying to be like Jesus. And we set out with the best of intentions, and we try really hard. But inevitably, we fail. So we work up our resolve, and we try harder, only to fail again, more miserably this time. And over and over and over again, the cycle plays itself out. And as it does, the frustration grows. We think to ourselves, if I just wanted it bad enough, or perhaps if I just attended the right conference, or if I listened to the right sermon, or if I found the right book, or the right mentor, or the right church, if I could just get it right, if I worked up enough resolve, then I would get it right. But no matter how hard we try, or how many conferences we tend, or how many books we read, it's never enough. And the reason for that is because Jesus, listen, Jesus never intended for us to live the Christian life in our own strength. The prophet Micah said it like this, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This, friends, is how we live the Christian life. And this is why Jesus was constantly talking to his disciples about the importance and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. He was like a one-track mind. He was always talking to them about the paraclete, the one who would come alongside of them. And and when the the Spirit gets here, he's going to baptize you in fire. And when the Spirit gets here, he's going to bring to your remembrance all the things that I've taught you. And when the Spirit gets here, he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And when the Spirit gets here, he's going to make it happen. He even went so far as to say, it would be better for you guys if I were gone, because then I could send the Holy Spirit. And then in the last moments, after Jesus had defeated the grave and he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, these are the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. And I want you to go ahead and turn there, because we're going to land with this. This is Acts chapter 1. And we studied this as a church a couple of weeks ago when my dad was here. But Jesus said this to his disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, the gift being the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't even think about setting off on this mission I have given you to preach the gospel and bring it to the ends of the earth, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't even think about starting that enterprise until you've waited for the promise of the Father, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive what? Power. Power. You will receive what? Say it louder. Power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
There's that word again, power, connected with the spirit. The Greek word for power is dunamis. It's the word from which we get our English word dynamite. It's the same word that speaks of a dynamic kind of living. Jesus wanted them, and he wants us to know that it's the spirit who's going to empower us to go out and live a dynamic Christian life. Sure enough, a few days later, the disciples are gathered together in an upper room. About 120 of them are there. And the spirit falls. A mighty wind blows. And tongues of fire fall from heaven. And they all begin to speak the wonderful works of God in unknown dialects. A crowd quickly gathers. And Peter stands up. And he says, I see what's happening here. This is what Joel talked about in the Old Testament. How in the last days, the Spirit of God is going to be poured out. And he preaches a fiery sermon. And in response, the people say, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And that day, 3,000 are added to the church. The church is born. Power flows mightily, not just through Peter, but through all of those first century Christians. A few days later, Peter and John are walking to the temple together, and they see a lame man. He'd been sitting there, and he's begging for alms. And this time, Peter's not looking at the man through his own eyes anymore. He's looking at the man through the eyes of the spirit and spiritual eyes. And the guy says, oh, I'm going to get something good. And Peter's like, I don't have any silver or gold. But what I have, I'm going to give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he takes him by the hand, and the guy stands to his feet. Power falls on those believers. And they walk in, and and they get arrested. And the same men that crucified Jesus tell Peter, don't preach again in the name of Jesus. And Peter's like, you better check yourself, because I can't help but preach about the things that I've seen and heard and experienced. Amen. And from there, a few, uh, uh, not long after that, a guy named Philip, another disciple, is walking, and he's ministering to one guy. And then the Spirit picks him up and teleports him to another city. Just the other day, my son who's eight years old, was saying, Dad, wouldn't it be cool if we could teleport? I was like, it's in the Bible. He might do it. That's the power that you walk in as a believer. When those first century Christians prayed, buildings shook, blind eyes opened, the dead were raised to life. One occasion, Peter finds himself in prison for preaching the gospel, and an angel wakes him up, and the prison doors fling open, and he walks out. This is the power that the gospel brings through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. When they came to this one city, it was said, oh, no, those who have turned the world upside down have come here as well. And I hear stories like that, and I read the book of Acts, and my heart says, Lord, would you do it again? Lord, would you do it Again, Lord, would you do it again? And then I hear the Spirit say to my heart, nothing's changed. The Spirit that worked mightily through them is alive and well in us. You see, the Holy Spirit didn't retire 2,000 years ago. He's just as committed today to working in and through his followers to bring redemption to a world that desperately needs the life-saving message of the gospel. So if he hasn't changed... If he hasn't changed, if God hasn't changed, if his plan and agenda hasn't changed, then what has? Is it, is it possible that we've allowed ourselves to become disconnected? Years ago, Billy Graham, he leveled this indictment against the modern church. He said, if you were to remove the Holy Spirit from the first century church, 95, 95% of their activities would cease. If you were to remove the Holy Spirit from the modern church, 95% of their activities would persist. 
That stings. I realize that. But it's also a reminder that this clear and dynamic and full life that Jesus promised is only possible through an intimate connection to the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit, friends, who saves us, fills us, seals us, sanctifies us. It's the Spirit who reveals God's thoughts to us and teaches us and guides us into the truth. It's the Spirit who helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us. And his power is made perfect through your weakness, friends. And the spirit of the living God dwells in you if you're a believer. You just got to connect to him. The Bible talks about the, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. Did you hear what I just said? Yes. That spirit lives in you. So the furthest, the furthest word that should be used to describe your life is ordinary. We are extraordinary friends, because we have the spirit of the living God within us. We need to reconnect. And it could just be that one connection. So how do we reconnect with the spirit? Well, Jesus said like this, and I love Jesus. Jesus said, you know what? He was teaching one day. He goes, you guys are evil, but you know how to give good gifts. So if your son asks for fish, you're not going to throw him a rock. Here, kid, chew on this. If he asks for fish, you're not going to Spring a scorpion on him. Good luck. Ah! If you're evil, and he just assumes, like, you're evil. Yeah, we're evil. And you know how to give good gifts to your kids. He says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.